all of my day.
Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that uh, our body has had to come together to praise you, to worship you, to sing together. Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us, continue to mold us, continue to allow us to praise your name today. As we have the opportunity to hear from your word in just a few minutes, would you help us to be ready to understand it? Would you prepare us to really listen to what you have to say to us today? Lord, allow Pastor Justin to preach in a way that is only about you, about your word. I pray that it would, then your word would transform us this morning. And again, I thank you for this opportunity that we've just had for these few moments to sing to you. I pray that this wouldn't just end here, but our worship to you would continue through this service, continue through this day, and also through this week. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you all can be seated. All right, I'm going to stretch this out a little bit because I want everyone who's coming in for the 1030 portion of the service to have time to get a seat. So um, either I can talk real slow or just make up announcements. We'll see how that works. Um, uh, first of all, I was getting some stuff ready for junior church. So I don't know if Ben already said this when he introduced or welcomed everybody. But if he hasn't, even if he has, it doesn't matter. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. All right. So happy Mother's Day to all. With Mother's Day being on our mind, uh, I want to remind everybody that today, this is uh, there is no evening services. That includes the teens, the youth group. We will not be meeting for youth group tonight. Again, as I said last week, teens, make sure that you take today to make it special for mom. And also, we are not going to be having the Sunday evening discussion group that meets here on Sunday evenings either. So again... Uh, tonight, there will be no services, either teens or adults, so if you show up and everything's empty, uh, go uh, do something else and maybe get dinner with mom, whatever you need to do. All right, so that is today. Uh, one thing that I did not mention last week that I wanted to make sure, um, and actually I will say we wanted to make sure as elders and deacons to to make sure we said was a thank you for everybody who showed up to the work bee that was two Saturdays ago. Um, I was unable to be here. We had opening day of baseball down in the field, but I heard that there was a tremendous uh, turnout and a lot of work got done, both outside and in, and then we just want to say thank you to everyone who gave up a few hours of their Saturday to come and make our facility uh, a little cleaner, a little more welcoming. Uh, we're just thankful that we had so many people that participated in that. Uh, and uh, that just a big thank you from all of us. As a reminder uh, for what's coming over the next couple weeks and then into June, uh, many of you have already known, but I know there's even already been some questions about how things are working. It's going to continue in May to be much like what happened today. Come at 10, we'll sing for about a half hour. Uh, and after that singing time, there's going to be some announcement time. This is also to serve as a transition 
time for people who are just coming to the 1030 portion so they can find their seats and get settled and all that stuff. And so that's what's happening right now. Uh, and that's going to continue through May. Once June comes, things are going to be different because we're going to be adding our adult Bible fellowship and our Sunday school back into the mix on Sunday mornings. Uh, and that's going to look different in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, again, if you didn't get this, when we start ABF and Sunday school again, starting in June, uh, ABF and Sunday school time is going to happen after the morning service. Instead of before, Sunday school and ABF is going to be after the morning service, which means at 10 o'clock our morning service will begin. At 10 o'clock we'll just run a what was a, a normal Sunday morning service. Starting at 10 will be about 20 minutes of singing followed by a sermon, and if we have communion and those type of things, those will be added in as well. And that should go to approximately 11.15, and we understand in uh, in this world we're living in, and just in church in general, it's hard to specific, have specific times, so we're going to say around 11.15. So between 11.15 and 11.30 is when this service will end, and ABF and Sunday School will begin. Uh, and this includes adults and kids, and so that's going to be happening starting in June. Now, part of the difference is going to be in that service, the announcements will not be taking place at 1030 like they will have been through May. Uh, it's going to be a seamless service starting in June. It's going to go right from singing right into the sermon. Uh, and then after the singing and sermon is done, then uh, I or someone else will come up at the end of service to give the announcements for the day and to dismiss people to ABF and Sunday school. What we're hoping that will happen with that is uh, that uh, we won't be taking undue amounts of time at the beginning of service and taking away and distracting from what we're really here for. Announcements are important, but not primary. And so uh, the announcements will come at the end of the service, and that way it might be one minute of announcements if we're running late, or it could be ten if we're really behind. Um, and so that's how it's going to work starting in June. So make sure you understand what's happening in June. Don't want anybody to misunderstand what's happening uh, and as for now, as much as many of us I know really, really don't like it, as for now, singing portions of our services will be uh, with masks on until further notice. And I don't know what that looks like, but whenever uh, we are able to stop, we will. But until then, please be courteous to one another and wear masks while we sing and also while you're moving around and not distant from others. All right, so that's happening in June. Make sure you understand we're going to... This is kind of a trial period in some ways. We're going to go through the summer, see how this works, work out the kinks, and then hopefully by the fall uh, we'll have uh, everything kind of figured out and we'll be able to move forward and everyone will think it's normal again. Finally, I want to announce Child Dedication Sunday, which is actually next week. It's been in the bulletin, and I know many of you have been reached out to personally, uh, but if you have had a child over the last year or two, I guess at this point, because we didn't do this last year, um, and you would like to uh, take part in the child dedication service, and again, many of you understand that the child dedication service, it doesn't give any extra grace to the kid, it's not like it makes, uh, it guarantees their salvation, uh, but it's really a time to dedicate the parents to raise the child in the ways of the Lord and also for our church to help them in that process. And so as we dedicate the child, we're really more dedicating the parents and dedicating uh, just the idea that the church and the family will work together to raise the kids that are born.
born in this church, that we will raise them up in a way that will honor and glorify God uh, through uh, through our interactions with them throughout their life. That's what child dedication is about. So if you have had a child over the last couple years, or maybe it's been even a little longer and you've never been part of a dedication service and you would like to do that, um, then please talk to me. Uh, you can talk to Carrie Kane also, uh, and make sure that you make we make us aware of that. And then next week, it's going to take place right at this time. So at 10:30 is when we'll do the dedication portion of the service. And so make sure that you're here and ready uh, for that part of the service at 10:30. That's how that'll work next week. All right. Is it the 23rd? Well, so here's the problem. Down at the bottom here, it says the 16th. Oh, no. Never mind. Good. I can take some time. I am completely ignorant. And I read the wrong date. So what I meant is, by next Sunday, you need to tell me or Carrie. All right? So... By next Sunday, and it's better to go to Carrie, obviously, because my mind is dead. Uh, so go to Carrie. Uh, May 16th, I'm sorry, May 16th is when you need to have names in. By the 23rd is when we're having service, which will be right here at 1030, but not next week. Again, child dedication, not next week, but on the 23rd. All right. Great. Also on the 23rd, while I'm announcing the 23rd, that will be our closing picnic for our teenagers. So Epic Teens, make sure you're aware that we are going to meet right after service. And picnic will begin around 1230. uh, And we'll have our kickball game, picnic, and senior recognition. All that's going to happen on the 23rd of May. So make sure that you are aware of all that. All right, it's 1034. I think I gave everybody sufficient time to... Oh, we... uh Oh, no. No, 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 no. Isn't it great to be able to worship in the sanctuary again in song time? That being said, if you feel like you need to sit down or tired, you know, some of us like to sit when we were out in the gymnasium. If you feel like you need to sit during that time, feel free to. Don't feel like you have to stand. That just needs to be said, okay? And you can sit down, old man. (laughs) Yeah, I'll sit. Uh, okay, I'll sit down, but let me just pray as we, uh, <laughs> let me pray as we enter into the next portion of our service before Justin comes up and shares with us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for bringing your people together. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you can even use our feeble minds and feeble bodies, um, for your glory. And would you just do that today as we continue to listen and learn? And also fellowship with one another through the rest of our time together. I do want to thank you, Lord, for all the mothers who are here. All those who are mothers, all those who have mothers, we're just able to celebrate the fact that you have instituted uh, parenthood to raise kids up in the Lord. And I just pray that as uh, we even just think about that today, that it would be glorifying to you. It's not just about uh, glorifying uh, people, but it's about glorifying you. So help us to do that today, even on Mother's Day. And thank you so much for today, and thank you for this opportunity. I again pray that your word would would come, and that your word would change the way we think, the way we act, and the way we live. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Did you know that there's something wrong with your calendar? Its days are numbered. Get it? (laughs) You can mark this down on your calendars. Mother's Day 2021, Pastor Justin, for only the second time in a decade of ministry, began a sermon with a joke. (laughs) We are going to talk about calendars this morning. Last week, we looked at Daniel's prayer of confession, which was prompted by his Bible study, in which he learned that the time of the exile should have been about up. Jeremiah had indicated that a 70-year period would come during which Babylon would be supreme in that part of the world, a 70-year period which the Jewish people would be in exile, forbidden from returning to Judah and Jerusalem, a 70-year period during which the Jerusalem temple and its atonement sacrifices were only a memory. So Daniel confessed his own sin and the sins of God's people at large, seeking to be obedient to both the prophet Jeremiah and also the Mosaic law both of which promised that God would return the Jewish people to the land and enable them to rebuild their temple if they confessed their sin and repented. Daniel's doing his part, and he's seeking to represent the people. Daniel then asked the Lord to fulfill his promises, to restore the people to the land, especially to bring an end to their exile. Famously, God quickly dispatches the angel Gabriel to answer Daniel. The Lord's answer has been the source of calendar calculations, speculation, and much debate among the Jews and in the church for a very, very long time. The first words of that answer are found in Daniel 9.24, where we read, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Before we explore the rest of the answer over the next couple of weeks, I think it's important to ask and attempt to answer a preliminary question. What would Daniel have heard and thought of and understood when he heard these words from Gabriel? Most of our English Bibles provide a footnote after the phrase 70 weeks to indicate that this phrase could more literally be translated as 77s. And pretty much everyone agrees that this means 77-year periods. The question is, would Daniel have understood it that way? Yes, I think so. How would he know? From his Bible, of course. The concept of a week in Scripture as a seven-day period is marked by the weekly Sabbath. But there is one place in the Bible where a seven a Sabbath doesn't merely mark the end of a week, but instead marks the end of a seven-year period. Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, we're introduced to two linked laws, one defining the Sabbath year and one defining the Jubilee year. I think it's likely that Daniel would have thought of this legislation as Gabriel unfolded what would happen in the future. So we should take a dive into the heart of Israel's calendar to make sure we understand the significance of this background for the meaning and purpose of the seven weeks prophecy given by Gabriel to Daniel in answer to his prayer. So, if you have a Bible, open it to Leviticus 25. We'll be be looking at a lot of scripture this morning, 
And we'll seek to draw out some implications for Christians today as we look at this law in the Mosaic law through the lens of Jesus and the gospel. First, the overall structure of Leviticus 25 looks like the outline that you can see on this next slide. There's a heading, and then you get into the actual legislation there. And first this morning, we'll look at the A parts of this uh, outline having to do with the law of the Sabbath year, verses 1 to 7 and 18 to 22. We'll see that verses 18 to 22 has relevance for the Jubilee year as well as the Sabbath year, which may be why the Jubilee year is introduced first, and then you move into the concerns of verses 18 to 22. The law of the Sabbath year focuses on providing rest for the land. Follow along as I read Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 7, and then we'll skip down to verses 18 to 22. Yahweh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. Skipping down to verse 18. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The land needs rest. This is not simply a practical agricultural principle, though agricultural experts have discovered certain benefits of letting a land or a plot of ground lie fallow for a prolonged period. And doing so is a practice known from other cultures in the ancient world. But the rationale here is not pragmatic. Rather, it is theological. The land belongs to Yahweh. Yahweh rested on the seventh day after completing his work of creation. And as a reflection of that, he commands his people to rest from their labors each week on the seventh day. So also, in the seventh year, he commands the people to allow the land to rest for a whole year. In the seventh year, allow, following six years of sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting, pruning and gathering. Yahweh owns the land, and he has the right to dictate how it is to be used. In a society of farmers like ancient Israel, one bad season for crops can lead to devastation for a family. So the question raised in verse 20 is certainly reasonable. In response, Yahweh promises a miraculous triple blessing on the sowing of the sixth year, the year leading up to the Sabbath year. 
This is akin to his provision for manna for them in the wilderness when he promised double the manna on the sixth day so that they could rest from gathering the manna on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. Now, at this point, we should consider the calendar. You should find a special insert in the bulletin this week with a chart on the front and a chart on the back. Look at the front, mark page one at the bottom. The chart with the yellow highlight is the back. The first column counts the years reflected in this passage, the sixth through the ninth. The second column indicates how to continue counting once the Sabbath year arrives. What you can see in the gray shaded area is that the Sabbath year, though it's called the seventh year, actually overlaps what we would probably count as the seventh and eighth year together. Thus, year eight is year one on the next cycle. The third column names the Jewish months and gives you the number of those months to help keep track. And then the fourth column is the modern month equivalents. Then there's a column which notes the activity, whether sowing or reaping and harvesting. Finally, I've indicated the crops that are harvested. So the triple blessing is promised on the sowing of the sixth year, the the planting that takes place in the seventh through ninth months of year six. They sow the same amount of seed that they always would, but God promises to bless that seed so that the harvest is triple what they expected. God would fulfill that promise most likely in the form of massive amounts of rain during the winter months. As indicated in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 to 5. The seventh month of the Jewish year is perhaps unsurprisingly the most holy month of the year, given that most of the Jewish festivals are to be celebrated during the seventh month. But it's also the month the sowing begins. So the first part of allowing the land to lie fallow to rest as a Sabbath to Yahweh, is to refrain from sowing. Thus, the Sabbath year actually begins in the fall of the seventh year. So to summarize, rest for the land means that the people will not plant seeds in their fields and will not do the normal work of harvesting their fields. Normally, for most Jews, the harvest would bring in not only food for the family, but also crops that could be sold at the market for income or stored for later in the case of a shortfall. Yahweh is calling his people to trust him to provide enough food, which they would harvest in the spring and summer of the seventh year for their families to eat the rest of the seventh year through the eighth year, when in the fall they would plant their fields once again and then continue eating on that sixth-year bumper crop until the springtime harvest of the ninth year. What a miraculous provision. What faith the people were being called to exercise. Now let's consider the law of the Jubilee year. Since it's such a large chunk of text, let's break up the reading of it. We'll see three R's for the Jubilee year. Return, redemption, and release. Let's consider the beginning of the legislation, the return in verses 8 to 17. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. 
Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am Yahweh, your God. So, following the Sabbath year... Every seven years, now we're to start counting seven weeks of years, or 49 years. However, this jubilee year doesn't start at the beginning of the normal year. Rather, it begins on the Day of Atonement, which is the tenth day of the seventh month. So it coincides with the beginning of the sowing season in the fall. But then it's counted as the fiftieth year in verse 10. How to count the Jubilee year is debated. The chart on the back of your bulletin insert with the yellow highlighting shows how I understand it, at least today. You count into the 49th year, and the seventh month then becomes the beginning of the Jubilee year, which will then overlap with the 50th year. So as I see it, you can refer to it as the 49th year if you think of it in terms of the first half of the year, Or you can refer to it as the 50th year if you think of it in terms of the second half of the year. And to keep the counting of the Sabbath years synced up with the Jubilee year, the 50th year is also counted as the first year of the next cycle. This seems to account for both verses 9 and 10. And if that's still confusing to you, feel free to put the chart away and never look at it again if you don't want to. It's still confusing to me, but that's my best attempt to understand what the text seems to be saying. The key activity is a return in terms of proclamation of liberty. The sacrifices of the Day of Atonement provide cleansing for the tabernacle and everything associated with the tabernacle as well as providing the forgiveness for all of the sins of all of the people for the previous year. The Day of Atonement sacrifices are offered, and it kind of serves as the divine reset day in the calendar for the Jews. In the Jubilee year, after the sacrifices have been made, the ram's horn would be blown throughout Israel to proclaim liberty for the people. The word jubilee is not actually related to the English word jubilation, celebration. Instead, it's just bringing over into English the Hebrew letters from the word that refers to the ram's horn. 
It's the year of the ram's horn, or the year when the blowing of the ram's horn proclaims liberty for the people. The liberty highlighted here has to do with freedom to return home, to return to one's land. If you're still thinking about Daniel, perhaps you can see the relevance. But the Jubilee year allowed all the Jews to return to their own family land. Poverty could lead someone to sell himself into slavery or to sell his land. The Jubilee legislation seeks to govern and put limits on the way this works out. In verse 11, we see that the Jubilee year seems to correspond with the Sabbath year, with instructions to leave the land fallow. This has led many students of Scripture to suggest that the Jubilee year would result in creating two consecutive fallow years. From the chart, you can see that I don't see it that way. I lean towards seeing them as coinciding. The repeated instruction on leaving the land fallow in this 49th and then 50th year may be so that no one would assume that the Jubilee year would somehow cancel out the Sabbath year and its provision of rest for the land. And so it duplicates that instruction here. In any case, verses 13 to 17 seek to regulate the price of land according to how long since and until the Jubilee year. And this is where we begin to see that real estate in Israel was not actually bought or sold. Rather, the crops produced by a particular plot of land may be sold. The land itself is merely leased. A Jewish farmer might lease a portion or all of his land to be farmed by someone else in order to receive a lump sum payment up front, which might enable him to settle a debt. In the next verses, we'll see that the farmer who has leased his land always has the right to redeem and return to his land if he or a family member can come up with enough money to do that. But it's possible that the farmer might never gain enough income to get his land back. And nobody in the family might step up to the plate to do that for him. Thus, the Jubilee year provides a -a once-in-a-lifetime safety net to enable the farmer to return his family property free of charge. The purpose of this legislation seems to be to curb the impact of poverty and to maintain the family inheritances within Israel through the generations Poverty need not ruin a family for multiple generations, as it so often does. In verses 23 to 28, we see laws for redemption of the land. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. 
But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. We're going to bypass verses 29 to 34, which presents two exceptions to the basic procedure laid out in verses 25 to 28. You can see then that verse 35 picks up the exact same language of verse 25, resuming the main thrust of the legislation. This becomes stage one in a downward spiral. But notice, first of all, the theological rationale for the legislation in verse 23. The land belongs to Yahweh. The Jews must consider themselves merely as Yahweh's guests. So the land must remain in the families and clans which Yahweh had allotted going all the way back to Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. The land is not to permanently change hands, change families. Verse 25 then introduces the first strategy a Jewish farmer struggling financially might take to alleviate his troubles. Sell a portion of his property. Or rather, he leases a section of his farmable land to another Jewish family. Either the farmer or one of his family members, can at any time pay money to redeem his property so that he might return to farming it himself. If the Jubilee year comes and he hasn't been able to buy it back, then he is allowed to return anyway, free of charge. Now let's skip down to verse 35 and see how the release works in relationship with the Jubilee year. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. We're going to bypass verses 44 to 55, which presents a couple of exceptions regarding foreign slaves and becoming a slave to a foreigner. So these verses contain stages two and three of what an impoverished Jewish farmer might do in order to survive. First, he sold part of his fields. Second, in verse 35, he is to seek out a loan. The legislation actually puts it the other way around. His fellow Jews are to notice his plight and offer him an interest-free loan. Loan him enough money to buy enough seed to plant for the next season. Once the harvest comes, hopefully he will reap enough that he can feed his family and pay back the loan. 
But the emphasis here is on the generosity of an interest-free loan. And it, too, is motivated and grounded in the generosity of Yahweh, who graciously rescued them from slavery in Egypt and gave them the land of Canaan. In verse 39, we get stage 3. The struggling farmer took the loan, but then he is unable to repay the loan. What will he do next to preserve his family? He might sell himself into slavery to the one who loaned him the money. Or better, hire himself out to work the man's fields as a way of working off the debt. The command here is that in this situation, the one hiring him will not treat him like a slave, but will seek to maintain his dignity, give him honest labor and fair wages in order to help him get back on his feet. Moreover, if he hasn't paid off the debt when the Jubilee year comes, then the man is to be set free from his service, which surely implies that the remainder of the debt must be forgiven. Now, as we mentioned last week, a major reason given in the Scriptures for the exile was Israel's failure to keep the law of the Sabbath year. If they didn't keep the Sabbath year, you can be sure that they didn't keep the Jubilee year either. And both of these are connected specifically with God's judgment of exile. So we're going to look at the breaking of the Sabbath and the Jubilee years now, Jubilee year laws. Consider again Leviticus 26, verses 34 and 35. After the Lord had indicated that if they refused to obey His word, He would devastate the land and exile the people so that the land would be laid waste, ruined, and desolate, then He says... Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. The land hadn't had its Sabbath rest prescribed by the Lord in Leviticus 25. Therefore, God sent them out of the land so that it might rest. But there's more. King Zedekiah appears to have attempted to reinstate the Jubilee year. Jeremiah the prophet indicates that the king had made a covenant with the people to make a proclamation of liberty to them, which is that unique phrase we saw in Leviticus 25. And so all the people set their Jewish slaves free. And then we read these words in Jeremiah 34, 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. To this, the Lord responds through Jeremiah and he refers back to legislation from Deuteronomy 15 that Jewish slaves should only be required to serve six years and then be set free. At the end of Jeremiah 34, 14, the Lord indicates that the Jews never obeyed that law either. Then we read these words from the Lord in verses 15 to 17. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around 
and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares Yahweh. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And skipping down to verses 21 and 22. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares Yahweh, and will bring them back to this city. And they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Thus the invasion of Babylon, the exile of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem was Yahweh's judgment for the people's failure to uphold the Jubilee year. He is the one truly in charge of the Babylonian army. He sends it to withdraw and then he calls it back. Finally, we revisit the verses we looked at last week near the conclusion of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. He, that's Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Thus, our understanding of exile must be rooted in the backdrop of the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year legislation. Should it surprise us, then, if the restoration, the rescue from exile, must be understood also with this background in mind? So we've considered the legislation itself, and we've considered how the people failed to keep these commands... Now let's consider the fulfillment of the Sabbath and Jubilee year according to Scripture. This is where we see further the connection of the, with the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9. We begin in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Notice the language of proclaiming liberty in verse 1. I'll keep my comments here brief, but this passage is just amazing. The proclamation of liberty is uniquely Jubilee language from Leviticus 25. And here it is a central feature in the mission of the Messiah as laid out by the prophet Isaiah. The me in verse 1 is the servant of the Lord who appears frequently in the last several chapters of Isaiah's prophecy. Knowing that Jesus is that servant... We can see an Old Testament indication of the Trinity right here in verse 1. The prophet Isaiah is quoting the Messianic servant, defining his own anticipated mission. 
The mission of the Messiah is here being defined in terms of fulfilling the purpose of the Jubilee year, but in an ultimate, final, and decisive way. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads these words from Isaiah in the synagogue of Nazareth and applies them to himself. The year of the Lord's favor is the final jubilee. And Jesus is indicating that it is being fulfilled in his ministry. After he quotes everything up to the first line of Isaiah 61-2, we read these words in Luke chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is on mission in Luke 4. He stops reading in the middle of verse 2 because he has come to fulfill the positive aspects of the Jubilee year while creating an unexpected delay in the Messiah's role as final judge. The year of the Lord's favor would not coincide with the day of God's vengeance the way the Jews expected it to. The year of the Lord's favor must stand alone, first and foremost, so that God's grace might extend to both rebellious Jews and rebellious Gentiles across the world as the true and final fulfillment of everything that the Jubilee year was really about. But as I said, Jesus is on mission in Luke chapter 4. The people of Nazareth struggled to believe that Jesus was the spirit-anointed Messiah Isaiah had announced. They knew him as the carpenter's son, but they had heard of him doing miracles elsewhere. After vaguely identifying himself also as a prophet, Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief and points to the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He reminded them that those old prophets did special miracles for a couple of Gentiles, excluding many in Israel who were suffering. The Jews of Nazareth seem to have understood his point. The fulfillment of the Jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor, the mission of the Messiah was not just for the Jews. And they tried to kill him. Then what do we see? After rebuking the Jews of Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum and he rebukes a demon living in a man. And the demon left. He then rebukes a fever in Peter's mother-in-law and the fever left. And then he rebukes a bunch of demons living in a bunch of people and all the demons left. And then he heals a bunch of other people also. Almost as an afterthought. Jesus is proclaiming liberty to the captives, setting people free from oppression and proclaiming the good news that He was bringing in the kingdom of God. Indeed, that He was the long-awaited King. Instead of blowing a ram's horn, He was proclaiming liberty through His powerful speaking. As Jesus hinted at in Nazareth, however... Like most things in prophecy, there is an already but not yet fulfillment. The final and indeed eternal jubilee year has begun, but the completion 
of all that the Jubilee year stood for awaits his return, his second coming. Instead of returning to a particular land, the Lord is summoning all people everywhere to return to him, to repent. And those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus receive rest, rest from trying to earn anything from God, release from the debt of our sin, release from our captivity to sin, our enslavement to Satan. The Sabbath rest merely foreshadowed in the Mosaic law and the practice of a weekly non-work day merely foreshadowed by allowing the land to lie fallow once every seven years. The true Sabbath rest of trusting the sovereign Lord of the universe to provide all your needs. Jesus, the Sabbath Lord, as he called himself, provides you with the true rest the moment you begin trusting in him. We've already entered the true rest that the Sabbath merely pointed toward. And yet, we also look forward to the full experience of rest in the future. Nevertheless, in the now, the messy, overwhelming, frustrating, suffering, struggling now, you can experience real rest and real freedom. Everything the Sabbath and the Jubilee pointed toward. Rest from trying to figure things out. Rest from trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Rest from trying to earn anything from the Lord. Rest from trying to pay for your own sin. Rest from carrying the weight of guilt for your failures. Rest from trying to measure up to some standard. Jesus is gentle, meek, lowly. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He is a good shepherd. He will lead you where you need to go. Jesus has purchased us, redeemed us by his death on the cross. He fulfills the day of atonement sacrifices once and for all. He owns, owns every person who trusts in him. And he claims every person who trusts in him. We have been redeemed. The penalty for all of our sin has been paid in full. The debt has been canceled forever. And yet, we also look forward to the redemption of our bodies in the resurrection. But even now, we can experience real freedom from the bondage of sin. Some of the sweetest words in Scripture to me are found in Romans 6.14. Sin will have no dominion over you. That promise puts the wind back in my sails when I feel deflated. That promise brightens my eyes better than caffeine or honey or any other stimulant known to man. Jesus has bought us out of slavery to sin and Satan. Next week, we will return to Daniel 9, where I will suggest the 70 weeks prophecy and the 70th week in particular has to do with what we've been talking about today. The 70 weeks of years, Gabriel explains to Daniel, is about the fulfillment of the Jubilee year. Daniel thought he knew 
from Jeremiah's prophecy when the end of the exile would be at the culmination of 70 years. Gabriel informs Daniel that the return to the land, which God would accomplish a very short time after Daniel prays, is only the beginning of the end of the exile. To deal with the problem that caused the exile in the first place would require a much longer time. For now, as we conclude, how can we live out the principles of the Sabbath and the Jubilee today? If Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath year and inaugurated the Jubilee year, if he has welcomed us into participating in the Jubilee, what should our response as Christians be? Combining the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year, let's consider the five R's. The Sabbath year was intended to provide rest for the land. This has relevance for God's people today. The principle we need to follow here has to do with acting as responsible stewards, both of our time and of the earth. Now, I'm not in any way commenting on problems related to the climate or the politics surrounding that discussion. Rather, I'm suggesting that Leviticus 25 reaches back to Genesis 1 to reflect God's granting to humans responsibility to care for and manage this created world for good. As Christians, being remade in the image of God, being restored as His rightful representatives in this world... Our new identity should influence how we treat the created world. I am not knowledgeable enough to make positive suggestions in this area, but I can say generally, don't trash the place. Enjoy nature as God's good gift. But don't treat the things of this world as simply garbage to be burned. The other implication of the rest offered to the land has to do with the faith of the people who live on the land. Remember, if the land was to lie fallow for a whole year, they had to trust God's promise that He would provide enough in the sixth year to last for three years. That's what He said He would do. In order to obey the command to let the land lie fallow, they had to believe God's word, to trust That God would do what He said He would do. To trust His promise of provision. Matthew 6 comes to mind. Don't be anxious about the things you might provide yourself with from money. Using money. Things like food and drink and clothing. Why not? Because your life is more than food. Your body is more than clothing. Because you are more valuable than birds God feeds every day and He will feed you. Because being anxious adds nothing to your life. Because you last longer than the flowers God clothes with such beauty every day. And He will provide clothing for you too. Because pagans, non-believers, people who don't know Jesus as the gracious King that He is... They are the ones who prioritize food, drink, and clothing and are anxious about them constantly. Because God is now your Father 
and He knows what you need. And finally, Jesus says, don't be anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow because tomorrow's tomorrow. I love how Jesus argues logically against our feelings of anxiety. But do we believe His reasons? Do we believe what He says? We can. He is absolutely trustworthy. The Jubilee year has to do also with a release. Genuine liberty. Our debt of sin has been fully forgiven. And we have been set free to please God. In the prayer Jesus taught His disciples, when they asked Him to teach them to pray, He used the language of debt release. Luke eleven four begins, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If we have been released from our sin debt... We must not hold on to the sin debts that others accrue with us. In other words, let go of your grudges. Some of you in this building are still holding grudges, holding on to old wounds. It's time for release. It's time for healing. It's time to extend forgiveness. Real and final forgiveness. The way the Jubilee year regulated the prices of redemption, of redeeming the land, has implications for us as well. Challenging ancient Jewish people to think about their land and their crops, not in terms of personal profit, so that the wealthy wouldn't just get wealthier while the poor just kept getting poorer, was very important. And the Lord surely intended to curb their materialism. And so it should be for us. Jesus drew on Leviticus 25 when he said in Luke 6, 35, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The principles of the Jubilee are behind the early church's practices of sharing resources described in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. There's no support for communism here. Rather, there's a challenge for us to part with our resources voluntarily in order to help those who are in need in our body. We're not storing up treasures on earth. Finally, returning to the land in the Jubilee year had the purpose of a great reset. It preserved the line of family ownership of the land God had allotted. And it would have, it would have preserved families from generational cyclical poverty. God cares about holding families together. Mother's Day and Father's Day are good to keep on our calendars. It's good to remember and celebrate the role of parents as God designed it. But it's also important to remember that life in a fallen world has resulted in the breakdown of families at times. And brokenness can cause holidays like this to be painful for some. However, restoration and wholeness 
can be experienced in the Jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus promised in Mark 10, 29 and 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lambs for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. While Jesus omits the word fathers, probably as a way of emphasizing the uniqueness of God's fatherhood, nevertheless, the Apostle Paul can call himself a father of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.15. Thus, the family restoration envisioned in the ancient Jubilee year can be a reality today among us. Jesus has made us his family We live out sibling relationships with each other and mother-child relationships and father-child relationships in the body of Christ. We all together put our hope, finally, in the return of our Savior who has begun the eternal jubilee with His Day of Atonement sacrifice on the cross. And in the meantime, we seek to live out the true liberty that He has given to us Freedom in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the freedom that you offer to people enslaved. We need to remember that reality about the people around us in the world. Whether they know it or not, they are slaves and they need freedom. And you are the only one who can set them free. We thank you that you have set us free. As we trust in Jesus, as we receive the benefits of the purchase, the redemption that was paid for in full on the cross, would you help us, Lord, to live out our freedom in Him? Help us to understand what that means. Help us not to wallow in a burden of guilt for sin that has been paid for and forgiven. Help us to live in the joyous freedom of pleasing God and being able to obey Him for the first time in our lives. Thank You for granting us such an ability by Your Spirit. Oh, Father, would You help Your people live the fullness of their freedom and not trade it in for a paltry substitute. Would You help us all to embrace what the Scriptures give to us, freedom as it really is, and not go back to a yoke of slavery, seeking to live out under the burden of rules and laws and legalistic practices and judgmentalism that tears the body apart. Oh, Father, would you bring healing and reconciliation to the relationships that have been broken. This is the year of the Jubilee. Help us to live out the freedom and the release that has been won for us, purchased for us, achieved for us, and offered to us in the death of your Son. Oh, Father, thank you for drawing us together as a family. Would you help us to live out that family relationship with faithfulness, honoring each other as brothers and sisters, honoring each other as fathers in the faith and mothers in the faith. 
We need more of those kinds of relationships. Discipleship and mentorship and all that that entails. Thank you, Father, for you welding us together, uniting us in Christ. Help us to put aside the brokenness and the cracks and the crevices that hold us apart. Help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.